Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. I'll be speaking with some of Australia's most brilliant innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into concrete reality. We had this strong sense that we couldn't fail. There was no way this couldn't work. Yeah, you know, we really respect our shareholders and, and to me you survive if you add value. So, you know, I could look at it and say I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. And so if you've got that ability to buy and sell and trade, some people have got it, some people will never get it. Some are household names and some you may never have heard of yet. On today's episode, I'm chatting to often controversial, always interesting billionaire Jerry Harvey. Jerry started from scratch not one but two business empires, most notably Harvey Norman. The first business he began at just 22 years old. Back then, Jerry was driven by some very personal demons to pursue success and, well, money. Now, at age 80, it seems those demons never left him. Please enjoy part one of my chat with Jerry Harvey. Jerry Harvey, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Thank you. Well, now I'm going to go back to the beginning. What sort of childhood did you have? I was uh, I was brought up in a wealthy family up until the age of twelve, and then I was pulled out of boarding school. The house burnt down. Uh, we rented a house. My mother and father went broke. Uh, then we went back to live in the garage of the house that was burnt down, and then we made our own beds. So. When I say that, we actually built the beds. So mum and dad had a double bed in the middle of the room and I had two younger brothers. They slept on the bottom of the one next door and I was on the top, but we built that bed. Then we had a copper on another little thing outside where you'd chop wood and boil up the copper and ladle it out into a bath. And the trick was to get into the bath first so you didn't get the third lot of water. So we were extraordinarily poor then. So here I am as a 12-year-old thinking I come from a really wealthy family and then as a 13-year-old I, I find out that I'm, I'm, I'm probably come from the poorest family in the country then because they, they then had to go on the invalid pension so they got £4 a week each so they had to keep themselves and three kids on £8 a week. How did they lose everything? My father was a publican that decided he'd drink more than he'd work my mother was a really hard-working, wonderful woman that got sick and couldn't go to work. You know, from my point of view, I'd be out working on farms on the school holidays or I'd be doing gardening work around where we lived for people or I'd be rolling the local tennis court uh, just to pick up a few bucks, you know. I was a school bookie on the train so I could pick up a few bucks gambling from people that gambled as well. I'd be looking at the orchid farm up the road thinking I can grow orchids and sell them on the side of the road. You know, I'd grow vegetables or sell them on the side of the road. Just anything that I can do, trade and make some money. So as a 14, 15, 16-year-old, I was always out there looking at how am I going to make some money. Was this in Springwood, in yeah, Sydney's in, Blue Mountains? in the Blue Mountains. I went to school at Katoomba for a while. When I left, I thought to myself, what am I going to do? I said to my father at the time, what, what am I going to do? And he said, oh, electrician's a good job. I said, okay, I'll be an electrician. And, and, and then I thought, oh, I'd really rather be a farmer because I worked on farm. But you've got to have money to be a farmer. 
So I had no money. I, I won a scholarship to an agricultural college, but what was the point of going there? So then I looked in the paper and I, I thought, Everyone wanted an accountant or a salesman. There were more jobs, vacancies for salesmen or accountants. It's still pretty much the same 50, 60 years later. So I thought, I can't be a salesman because I know I'd be hopeless. I'd be an accountant. So, so that's what I thought I'd be, an accountant. But then when I started studying accountancy, I thought, this is the most boring thing. I hate this. That's why I took a job as a door-to-door salesman, just to run away. You say your father, before the drink got hold of him, was a publican. Were they business people? No, Were they no, no. entrepreneurs? No. Were they um, good at retailing, no. good at being publicans? No, they're terrible. My father was a really good bloke. Everyone loved him because he loved to drink, but he wouldn't work. And, and so, you know, I look at my father and think, you had all this opportunity and you blew it. From my point of view, I, I don't want to be like my father. He's a great example for me to be someone else. As a 14, 15, 16-year-old, I was always out there looking at how am I going to make some money because the worst thing I could think of, and it stayed with me up until 10 or 20 years ago, was that I'd go broke one day and I'd be an invalid friggin' pensioner, right? Um, So that I always had this fear of going broke. And when I see people retire with $1 or $2 million, now I think, wow, uh, I wouldn't be game to do that because I've got $2 million and I can retire. And I, I want $20 million at least before I'd retire because it's scary. What interest rates drop to nothing, then you've got no income, you know, and, and you're retired at 65, you're now 75 and you've got no income. What am I going to do now? I you're saw gonna, it happen. You're going to scare everyone listening to this because most people haven't even got one or two million. Well, let then, alone twenty. Well, then they shouldn't retire. I'm. I've just turned eighty. I've not retired. So my advice to them would be, don't retire if you haven't got enough money, and and if you haven't got at least ten million, don't retire. Keep working because it's scary. You might live for another thirty years, and you'll be destitute. It was always in me that I don't want to end up like my father. And I want to be successful. So went to university for a couple of years and, and I hated that. And I took a job as a door-to-door salesman. Selling vacuum cleaners. Yes. And, and so that, that was a job I hated. And then I started selling TVs, which I loved because I had leads and you just take the TV to the house and it, just after TV came out. And I was making 200 and 300 pound a week when I was 19 and 20. And in those days, the average wage was 10 pounds. So I was making sometimes 20, sometimes 30 times wow. what the average guy was making. This was selling door-to-door on commission, selling or the selling, vacuum cleaners. Yeah, or selling TVs on leads after door-to-door. So, you know, I was making a lot of money when I was a 19, 20, 21-year-old. And uh, then when I was, I was 21, I went and worked for a real estate guy for a while. It was in 1961 you know, there was a big recession on then. And and so everything I sold would just fell over. And I was the most unsuccessful real estate salesman in history. But he was he was running a little auction out the back to try and make some money, household goods and that sort of thing. And when I saw that, I thought, I'll ring up a mate of mine and we'll go and open one of these. So I rang him up, the fellow called Ian Norman. And, and so we opened Harvey Norman Auctions in 1961. And that was an auction house, and we sold a bit of new stuff on that. 
And within about six months, I could see there was a possibility of doing quite well selling new stuff. So we started selling new fridges and washers, and then we put lounges and beds and all sorts of things in. So we had the auctions going on one side, the retail for new on the other side, and then the partnership with Keith Lord called Norman Ross at, uh, at Neutral Bay. So they were our first two shops. Can you actually remember that first day of opening the very first store? Can you remember the feeling or the look of it? I'm trying to imagine it. Well, I remember well because it was an old warehouse-type building and I painted, well, we both, we got it and painted the walls yellow with black sign writing, Harvey Norman. JB Hi-Fi copied us 30 or 40 years later. So we bought cheap paint, the cheapest paint you could buy, the brightest yellow and the blackest black. And, and it stood out. And then on opening day, there was a band down at, uh, Woolloomooloo jazz band, Ray Price, I think it was at the time. And we got him and his band in the middle of the road playing. Now you're not allowed to do that, but he got away with it. And we got away with it for an hour or two until the police came and moved us on. But everyone stopped. It was in the middle of the Princess Highway at Arncliffe. And uh, and they came in to have a look at what the hell's going on here. So we were running an auction and selling stuff and it just went off with a bang from day one. Did you, at that early stage, did you buy the properties? No, no, no. We had no money. So when we opened up, we had between us £700 and, and most of that was his. So what I so did... So no capital? No. No money from your folks? No. My no fo- money from the bank? No. So what I'd do a lot of, I'd go to people, we'd advertise to buy housefuls of furniture. And I'd go out and see people that wanted to sell all their furniture. And I'd say, look, I can give you X dollars, but if you give me a couple of weeks, I can sell it and I can give you a bit extra. And most of them wanted me to, you know, give them a bit extra, and which I did. So I did it with no capital and, and, uh, and, and used their product. They got paid two, three, four, five weeks later. Uh, they got a bit more than they thought they'd get. So basically, the other people's furniture, boats, whatever, that you didn't have to buy that stuff. You said, I'll take it for you virtually on consignment and yep. I'll sell it. So that gave you some cash flow. Exactly. But but we had enough cash too that we could buy some, but a lot of it we didn't buy and it did give us, as you said, the cash flow. When did you start to move from, say, the auction house secondhand pre-loved stuff, as we call it now, to all new furniture, household Well, within six goods. months or eight months, whatever it was, with the auction going really well, we got one side of the building and put in all new. It was very quick. We were running both, the auction and the new. When you're an auction house... You've got to be able to value goods. And luckily, I had the ability, it didn't matter what it was, whether it was an animal or a piece of furniture or um, uh, whatever it was. You know, I could look at it and say, I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. And so if you've got that ability to buy and sell and trade, some people have got it, some people will never get it. It's, It's one of those things, like with horses at the moment, I'm a horse trader, I love being a horse trader. But you've got to be able to make money selling horses. You've got to say, I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. So I love the horse horse auctions because I'm going back to my original thing about being a horse trader, buying and selling. Trader. A trader. You love to trade. I do. And and so if I'd have been born 
2,000 years ago, around about the time of Jesus Christ, I would have been one of those traders, you know, running around the world, buying and selling. Yeah, you um, would have ignored Jesus and got on with the trade, yeah, right? Yeah, he'd, he'd have been doing the sermon and I'd have been making dollars on the side, yeah. You said, you know, you didn't really have much startup capital. Did you say in the 60s with the growth of Norman Ross, because it grew to what, something like 40 plus stores in we, New South Wales we, and we, Queensland? We started in 61, sold out in 82. It had 42 stores doing 240 million a year. So we were one of the most successful retailers in, in that period. If you'd invested in, in, the public company when we went public in 1972, you turned $1 into 15 in 10 years. You know, we were very, very successful uh, as Norman Ross. How did that happen? Firstly, well, did you ever need to go to a bank for money? Yeah, because when you're a small businessman, you're always talking to the bank. I'd spent a lot of time talking to the bank manager. And I'd spent a lot of time talking to our suppliers. At one stage, after we'd been going for three or four years, one of our biggest suppliers at the time wanted to put us into receivership. So I said, "Why? Because well, they were you just, not paying they, your bills? Or? No, we we're paying our bills, but we we're growing too big, too quick. So I went. It was actually it was called Westinghouse at the time, the company. So I went and saw the the boss of Westinghouse, and I said, "Listen, you want to put me into receivership? I don't want to go there. So I want you." to find the smartest bloke you know, accountant or whoever, and put him with me and, and come and investigate my company and I'll work with him every day for a week or a month or whatever you like, and he will give you a report as to whether I should go into receivership or not. He said, okay, I'll do that. So anyway, this guy came and I worked with him every day for, I can't remember, three, four weeks, two weeks, I can't remember. And I said, what do you think of my business? He said, you've got a fantastic business. He said, I'm going back to Westinghouse to tell them that you have got a fantastic business, they would be stupid to put you into receivership. So that solved that problem. And I knew I had a good business, but I was undercapitalized. You know, you, when you've got struggled. no money, you've got no money. So you really struggled for capital yeah, sure. all through but, that first But when you try to grow years? a business for, from nothing, um, it's very, very difficult and, and with no capital, you know. But the first five or ten years, is it? like I worked seven days a week, ten hours a day, twelve hours a day, didn't matter. But I built the business. All I wanted to do was build a business and, and that's what we did. So you did have to rely on bank capital? Yes. Did the banks work with you well? Do you? Yeah, we had a good relationship with the with the bank. And in those days, it was quite difficult too because – I can't remember the tax rate, but let's say it was 50 cents in the dollar. And then when it was distributed from the company to you, you paid up to another 60 cents in the dollar. If you had $100, you were left with 50. Distributed, you were left with 20, right? So how do you accumulate money? It was very difficult. And also there was no easy cash. There weren't heaps and heaps of financial institutions in the 60s and early 70s throwing money at you no, like just, it was post-1980s. Just the bank. But, but I can't remember the interest rate at the time, but I think it was around 3%. So money wasn't that expensive, but it wasn't easy to get. It's much easier to get today. People complain about how difficult it is to get money, but it was much harder then. Did you ever foresee back then? You say you were super ambitious and you were prepared to work really hard. You wanted to be 
rich. Did you foresee back then that not only would you become a household name in retailing in Australia, but you would become this huge empire that employs 20,000 people? 20,000 people you employ. So now, no, look, you know, the situation is when I was young like that, I just wanted to open lots of shops, make, make lots of money. And in 1982, when we did sell out, you know, I didn't know what to do. And, and, and I thought, oh, well, I'll just open one shop, which I did. And that was on Parramatta Road at Auburn. And at that time, I thought, oh, I've been through this thing, 42 shops, and I just opened one. That was where my head was at the time. This so is I, now 1982. 1982. When you sold the Norman Ross chain. Yeah. So Did you make a bundle of money from that? Well, I think we sold it for $23 million at the time. I could have retired, I guess. That's amazing, actually. £700 capital to start with. Yeah. And what, 20 years later, you no, well, sell it, it was, for $23 million? Yeah, that's right. Well, that pales into insignificance when you talk about what happened next because what happened next is we opened one shop and it goes off. Then you open another one. At the time, I didn't know what to call it. And then I thought back, I thought, why don't I go back to Harvey Norman? Because I'll bet when we sold it out, they never re- registered the name. And when I checked, no, it wasn't. So you can get the name Harvey Norman. So I went back to Harvey Norman. So the first shop we opened in 1982 at Auburn was Harvey Norman. So that shop just went off from day one. And, and then we just <laughs> opened another one. And then another one, I thought, oh, here we go. I didn't have this in mind. Um, I did think that I'd done that and I wasn't going to do it again. But is, then I saw the opportunity. I thought, wow, this is like I can open up dozens of shops. And, and of course, that's what happened. We opened in 1982 and in 1987 we went public and anyone that invested $1 in that company in 1987, by the year 2000, they turned it into $100. So anything we'd done previously with Norman Ross hugely successful, zero compared with what happened in Harvey Norman. Like, we outperformed every other public company in Australia between 1987 and 2000, and we've grown a lot since then. So how did you do that? Well, the the advantage I had, I think, was that I was 42 instead of 22. And and so I'd, I'd accumulated a bit of knowledge. I learned how to be a businessman. Um, and, and to be a businessman, you've got to, um, you've got to have a lot of attributes. You can't, you know. You've got to be you, tough. Yeah. You've got to be a bit of an accountant. You've got to be a bit of a lawyer. You've got to be a salesman. You've got to be a trader. You've got to know how to handle people. You've got to know how to get the best out of people, all that sort of thing. If you put all of those things together and you do them all pretty good, you're going to be very successful. And so this time I, I just took advantage of the situation. And opened up shop after shop after shop, and, and and it's where it is today. Is that when the franchise model stepped in? Well, what I did in 1982, I thought to myself, I'll try doing this with franchising rather than doing it with just a company. So I tried the franchise model, and I thought, this is better. However, when you look at it across the rest of the world, we don't do franchising in the rest of the world. And Nearly 25% of our profit now comes from the rest of the world. So you don't have to do franchising with our model, but franchising's worked very well for us here in Australia. And Why? Um, Does that mean the person you franchise with, yep. they take all the risk? 
No, 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 we take all the risk. If you want to get a Harvey Norman franchise, you can't just get it and buy it. With a Harvey Norman franchise, we have to approve you. You have sure. to have the ability. One of the biggest problems with franchising is that people sell franchises to people that can never run a business. And they might pay half a million for a franchise, but they're going to lose the half million. But the guy that takes it off them doesn't really care because he's got his half million. I would have difficulty living with that because if I took half a million off somebody and I pretty much knew that they couldn't run that franchise, I couldn't keep it. I'd have to give it back, I think. People don't pay and anything. And also it's your reputation, your name, your business brand well, that that's would be why, damaged. Well, that's why we want quality people running the franchises. And, and, and so they don't pay anything to come in, but they don't get anything when they go out either. But they can make a lot of money while they're there. So it's a very good model. And, and, and so you've got a whole heap of people out there that love our model. All the people that work in Harvey Norman just think it's fantastic. But you get, you know, we get criticized from time to time from different people out there saying, you know, like franchising and Harvey Norman. It goes on and on and on. But they're all the people that are, I don't know, they've got something wrong with them. And, and so we've got a very successful model. It's worked all my life. And what is the model? Well, the model is that you're out there running a business and you've got all these people working uh, with you uh, that are trying to be successful. And we have this thing about people and we mark them all out of 10. If you work for me, I'll tell you whether you're a 6 or a 7 or an 8 or a 9. There's never anything other than a 9. But Except for you and Katie, presumably. No, 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 we're only we're 9s, no more. I have to say, I think we got quite a lot of people working for us that are better than us. When you've got 20,000 people working for you, you've got a wonderful talent bank. Part of that, one of your business principles, fundamental, as I've heard you say before, is to incentivise people. You wanted to be incentivised when you were young. Well, How do you do that? Is that how you well, that's get the loyalty? Fran- is that how you get yeah, good people? Yeah, that's the franchise model. So you can be... You know, if you run that business really successfully, like we've got so many people over the years and 500,000, a million a year and a million and a half a year and that sort of thing. So, and it's not a small number. It's all, it's a lot. And, and so, you know, these are people that might have started as a salesperson on the floor or in the warehouse or in the clerical division or something like that, or even a truck driver. One of our best guys started as a truck driver. When they see that opportunity, it gives them something they'd never envisaged. They, you know, they, they never thought they'd earn a million dollars a year or half a million dollars a year. And so when that happens and they see this opportunity, like, you know, we're constantly being told you've changed our lives. Our kids go to a good school. We've got a nice house. We drive a nice car. Our standard of living is there because of Harvey Norman. And that's very satisfying when you when you're influence or you've got a part in making people's lives better. In terms of how you built the second empire, let's call it that, the yeah. when when you restarted Harvey Norman again, how did you know the people that you went into franchises franchise shops with would be good retailers? Oh, well, <laughs> Uh, I've mainly picked all the ex-people that I used to work for and work with in Norman Ross. So at the time when it was taken over the new owners, 
were not the nicest of people. So it wasn't hard for them to be plucked from the from Norman Ross. And I built Norman Ross, and then I spent the next eight or ten years sending Norman Ross broke. And all the people that used to work at Norman Ross all came to Harvey Norman. Was property a huge part of the success of Harvey Norman? Well, yeah, because every time I open a shop, I want to own it if possible. And then I don't have to deal with landlords. And, and, and it's, you know, it's everyone that's ever been in retail will tell you, own your own property. They'll all tell you that. The idiots out there that, that are not in retail tell you, you're a retailer, you shouldn't own your property. And they just have no idea what they're talking about. But there's, a, there's still a whole heap of them out there, financial geniuses, telling me, that you shouldn't own your property, you know, you should put it in a trust and it should be separate. And I said, yeah, and you'd like to run that for me, wouldn't you, you know, and make a few bucks. Is that right? Yeah, I would, I would. Yeah, well, thank you, but I'll do it myself, thank you. And and so, you know, over the years, you know, we went public and I did that and made $500,000 profit. Everyone else up until that time had always, and it's still they still pay a fortune to go public. I made a profit out of going public. You know, at the time when I went public in 87, I barred all the institutions. I had a prospectus that was in the stores. You had to buy shares in the stores. No one had ever done this before, but it worked. And so you didn't go through any investment banks? No, or- I did it all myself. Because you floated I, your company by yourself. Yes, and it worked like crazy. But just the other day, we raised some money. So rather than pay a broker one, two, three, four percent, I do it. Right, it costs nothing. I under I've underwritten it personally a few times. They won't let me do that now. Funny world. So now we did it the other day, and we were three million shares short. Doesn't matter. Instead of raising one hundred and seventy-five, we're one hundred and sixty-eight. Then the, the journalists and the, and the finance people write it up as if it's a, it's not a success. And you think, how dopey are they? Because it's cost me nothing to do it this way. I didn't raise 175, I raised 168. I knew that's what would happen. And it costs nothing. Everyone else that does it, it costs them a heap of money. They've had at least 1%, but let's say 2%. 2% of 160 million is 3.2 million. So I'm 3.2 million better off straight away. Are all the franchise stores in Australia and New Zealand, are they owned by you, the property? Yes. Harvey Norman owns the property. Harvey Norman does. So when, when we're making, when we're making money, a lot of our income comes from rent because we own all the, not all the properties, an awful lot of them. Most of them? Is there 195 stores? Yeah, in Australia, but don't and ask then, me how many we own. No, at least right, half so or something like that. At least like, half. Yeah. And then the overseas stores, what, We 90? own a lot of those. Like in Slovenia, we've got five shops. We own all of those. What Ireland, about the one we, in Singapore? I saw it just a few months ago. Yeah. Well, it's huge. It, that shop does over 100 million turnover a year. That's, Do you own that property? Uh, no. No, we don't. I wish we did. Um, but we own other property in Singapore. Um, and then, you know, we own property in Ireland. Um, so we own a lot of property in New Zealand. Do you acknowledge that property and investing well in property has been a huge part of your business sure. and creating your wealth? Sure. Well, we've got 3.2 billion, I think it is, in property. So, uh, but let me say, if we didn't own any property, we still would have been very successful. The fact that we own the property makes us even more successful. 
Did you ever come close to going under, going broke in those early days? I, I, I went through a really bad t- stage at one stage. I, was, I thought I'll go to America. Uh, and I did. I went for six weeks and it cost me $200 for the plane. So I'd go to a different place every day or two, looking at retail and talking to retailers to find out where retail was going to be one day. So I did that for, I think I was away six weeks. And then when I came back, the guy I'd put in charge, he buggered it up. And I looked at the, holy hell, what did you do while I was away? And for the next couple of months, I had to because if, if I'd stayed away another month, we would have gone broke. Uh, so it was another lesson. Just keep your eye on everything. Don't run away for six weeks uh, and, and leave your business. But at that stage, I thought it was okay, and I just wanted to be really big, and I wanted to find out where retail would be. I mean, I, I was extremely ambitious. Join me next episode in Build It, Thou Come, for part two of my interview with Jerry Harvey on how Jerry built his business empire, what were his big mistakes, and as Jerry reveals, who really runs the business today. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks. And be sure to subscribe as there'll be plenty of upcoming episodes with more amazing Australian innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their idea into an empire.